The word design refers to a plan for how something will be arranged. The word random refers to an arrangement that has no plans. And the phrase random design refers to our game this time, 20XX. Tonight on the Commune Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Commune Podcast. This month we are playing 20XX, formerly Echoes of Eridu. It's a platform shooter with procedurally generated levels. It's currently in early access, so what we are playing is an unfinished version, but it certainly seems finished. Right, guys? Yeah. Uh, I was actually kind of surprised by how much was changed in the most recent update, so I'd say no. Well, there are still a lot of changes, but if, I think if you take a snapshot at this moment... It's certainly playable, yeah. And it has bosses and a certain level of polish to it. Yeah. All right, but th- just a uh, disclaimer before we get into things. So, in the blue corner, Waithwat, how are you? Oh, cool, I'm blue. I'm, I'm surviving. It's been a stressful month, but I'm here. <laughs> Ugh, that sucks. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're here. <laughs> And in the red corner, we have yourself. How are you? Am I the red corner because I play as Ace? Uh, that was totally purposeful. Yeah, I'm sure it was. <laughs> Fine. All right. Uh, Wait, what? What have you been playing lately? I haven't put a lot of time in Xenoblade X. Oh. It's a lot of fun. How similar is it to the first one? Gameplay or combat-wise, it's pretty similar. X feels more action-y, and moving around matters a whole lot more. But overall, they're pretty different, since the original Xenoblade was still open world, but it, you know you proceeded through it story-wise. In X, I'm pretty sure before you finish the tutorial, you could probably explore almost the entire world. Wow. So, yeah. do you get lost? How do you decide where to go? Um, you know how in Assassin's Creed you've got those viewpoint things that expand your map? It's yeah. got something similar to that, so I usually head around to those because it doesn't—it expands the gamepad map and also gets you funds and stuff. Okay. Yeah. So really, it's got a lot of systems in it, a lot of things happening at once, and it's really complicated. Yeah, I saw someone link to like a ten-minute video explaining how the map works, and <laughs> I really had to raise my eyebrow at that. Yeah, that sounds right. The first one already had a lot of systems. Mm-hmm. So you liking it? Yeah, it's a whole lot of fun. I think I got 40 hours in it last I checked. It was a while ago I checked. (laughs) Gee. Yeah. Yourself, what have you been playing? I actually decided I was going to revisit Ogre Battle for SNES. Oh, so is this on Virtual Console or the PlayStation re-release? I'm playing the Virtual Console one just because it was a little more convenient. Like, so marginally less convenient that after I bought it, I was like, hmm, that was kind of dumb. But (laughs) (laughs) that's just what I decided to go with. Are you going back with any uh, particular purpose or just a refresher? I actually have never finished this one. I've played 64 probably six or seven times, but I never made it all the way through the first game. So I've just been in kind of a mood for an RPG or strategy game, and uh, it's a good one to dig into. I never was as big a fan of this one. I thought it was a little clunky, 
but revisiting it now, possibly because it's been a long time since I played 64, it does remind me how it really is like just an amazing game, just so much better than any other game ever made. Hmm. Just so obviously better in every way possible. What's some (laughs) nugget you could give us that speaks to this high level of quality? I spent like two hours just reorganizing my units after like the second mission. Uh. And that's just it's awesome, the level of customization you have and the way that that customization drives the strategy of the game. Like I set up my units in a way that I would level the characters that I wanted so I could define like good units, evil units, ones that are good with beasts, ones that are good for mountains. Hmm because of the fact that you control these units of five characters, it's sort of like having a strategy game where you can define your own classes. Because although each character has a class, those three to five characters that go into each unit define a uh, sort of theoretical unit class. And so it's like playing Final Fantasy Tactics or something like that, except with 15 times the level of character customization. Right, since uh, the story there is that you never move an individual unit. You have to move their whole squad all at once. Yeah, it's characters and units. Units are the groups of three to five characters, but yeah. Okay. It's confusing, the terminology, but uh, <laughs> yeah, they fight automatically. So you have like 10 units that you place on the map. So that's similar to a, a regular tactics game would be about that many, like your Shining Force or Fire Emblem. But those are composed of five characters who individually have their own stats, classes, equipment, and, you know, level up on their own. Yeah. I remember very quickly getting lost with that game. It is pretty much the ultimate strategy game. Looking back on it, it is hard to figure out why no one took better lessons from it. Or played it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. And, uh... I guess I should mention uh, there's a new Darius game that just came out, and I was pretty I was pretty pumped. I bought a uh, PC engine at the beginning of 2015 just to play a console version of the first Darius, so I was pretty excited to be around for a new release. The gimmick this time around is that one, there's like a million different ships, and two, most of the ships have a stationary laser you can place wherever you like and then it'll mow down enemies as long as you as long as you keep collecting juice for it so it kind of plays into killing off enemy waves because you you place it at a strategic spot to kill some wave that's about to come in and then it'll just sit there and mow through them and like every Darius game it has big cool bosses and uh branching paths so it's a good time it's a bit tiny on my screen because they insisted on porting the arcade version of the arcade mode, but not the PSP version of the arcade mode. So it's, I believe, three screens, like three 16 by 9 screens wide. So uh, you kind of have to put your face right up next to the monitor to get anything out of it. But it's still good. That seems... It just seems so lazy. I know why they would include that for authenticity, but not trying to rework your game to the platform you're putting it on, just, yeah, that's the definition of lazy. Well, there's two things. One, 
the big thing they were hyping with this release was that there's a a CS mode, Chronicle Saviors. It's like a mission mode, which is still pretty fun, but not as, like, it doesn't have the same level of polish as the arcade mode. And uh, something else, this is just weird, is that the game started on PSP, so it started in a resolution, or like, yeah, in an aspect ratio that would fit perfectly on my monitor. But they didn't port that, I guess, because it would look ugly, because it's a PSP game. Yeah. So basically the main mode of the game is not the one that you have any interest in playing, or what they're selling is the main mode. Yeah. In our podcast on level design in Super Mario Land 2, we talked about levels using fixed examples. Each level's design came out of specific moments that you can always visit. This time, however, we're discussing 20XX, a game with ever-changing level design powered by procedural generation. Rather than cover what each level has, instead, we must cover what each level could have. There are four types of levels in 20XX, and each has its own unique enemies and platforms. So, level design is a matter of those components and how they might be arranged. What's the feel of each level's design, and what does procedural generation add to it? I should mention that we commonly use the phrase level chunks, which refers to a predetermined layout of platforms. 20XX builds its levels by selecting several chunks and then arranging them in a random order. Also, we played 20XX during December 2015, while it was still in alpha. This time I wanted to get at level design in 20XX. Its level design is procedural in the same sense that games like Binding of Isaac are, in that there are level chunks that are pre-made, but then they're arranged in a random fashion to some extent. There are four different level types in 20XX, at least at the moment, so we will be talking about them individually. Waithbot, how variable would you say are the platforming challenges in Jungle Station? I... Just the challenges specifically, or the overall level? The challenges being the bits that lead to treasures. Just the bits. They do feel kind of repetitive after a time, because I feel like there's only, on each level, a few that end up happening. But the placement of where they end up, compared to the rest of the level, can be interesting. Like what you have to get through to get to the challenge in the first place, if you get what I mean. So there'll be like a side path branching off to it, and you mean that part? Yeah, basically. Okay. Well, I have seen a new one since the update that adds in the little fireball shooters from the super hot facility, where you have to jump back and forth between a magnet platform and a regular platform while two shoot at you, and you snake around and get to the treasure. Whoa. There's that, and then there's uh, basically a circle of disappearing and reappearing platforms. Yeah, I remember that. So within the level, though, aside from the treasure challenges, do you feel like there are a lot of different platforming setups? I feel overall, yes, but with, like you said, specific chunks, or like I said, I guess, they end up being familiar after a time. They're more varied with the level itself, so it doesn't feel like, oh, it's this bit again, as much. How do you mean they're more varied with the level itself? Basically, there's more chunks, and the way they can end up ordered makes it feel more different than just the same little side path that I think I saw two runs ago, maybe. 
you know. Right. So the structure is what buries it for you. Yeah. Like what's you don't know what section you're going to be playing next. Right. Okay. And so that would provide a unique context for each chunk, then. Yeah, essentially. And the enemy spawns, of course, varied up a bit since they pretty randomized. Yeah. On that note, how different would you say are the enemy challenges in Jungle Station from playthrough to playthrough? I feel like it's pretty good sometimes. For the, for the most part, yeah. It feels like they're placed in proper spaces. Like, I know there's a bit in uh, Jungle Station you have to jump over, I think, a disappearing, reappearing platform that's above that blue goop stuff that damages you when you fall in it. And I'll occasionally see one of those lotus flower things spawned in there. With Nina, who I usually play, it's unless you have one of the extra shots, it's pretty hard to take it out, so you just have to jump quickly so you don't get hit. So some of the time they can end up adding to the platforming, you know? Yeah. Uh, the soul enemies, though, can mess things up sometime. It's This isn't a jungle station example, but one time in Sky Temple, I remember, I was at one of the track platforms going up, and there was one of those soul cannoneer things right at the top that was just constantly shooting, uh, so I just couldn't get past, and I died. Those yeah. guys are the worst even when they're not soul enemies. Yeah. Every once in a while, an enemy will land somewhere that just doesn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, sometimes comically and sometimes problematically. In Agnesort one time, I had a one of those bees that automatically targets you and like sort of... Uh, Dive flies bomb. straight down at you, yeah, dive bombs you. I had him spawn in a small downwards corridor below me, so he took up the entire entire room of the shaft, but because I was above him, he would never dive bomb. So yeah, there's just no way to get through except jump through the enemy. <laughs> so with what, would you say that there's less predictability to the enemy placement than platforms? Yeah, I'd say so. Do you think that results in a in a good level design? What are your feelings on that? To increase challenge, I feel like it is a good design, since if you know where the enemies are going to spawn, you know how you need to move in preparation for them. So if the, you don't know where they're coming from, like in Jungle Station, a lot of the time you can cheat your way up the regular platforming bits by jumping up the walls or to the side of a platform as, as it's appearing. And yeah. say, if you know there's going to be two bats at the top of this next thing, you can just be aware of it, but if you don't know that they'll be there, they can come out, surprise you, you gotta react quick. Yeah, there's some level of uh, caution you have to take. Do you think it would work as well if the if the platforming were more random? Probably. Yourself, how different are the platforming challenges in Sky Temple? Well, it varies in two ways, I guess. The structure of the level varies, and the difficulty of the level varies, because in this game... You play eight stages, but the order is flexible. But unlike in Mega Man, it adjusts for the order you play in. Uh, so when you play Sky Temple as the first stage, it's going to be a lot easier than the version you play if it's the fifth or sixth stage. I, I found that Sky Temple is actually fairly... Uh, monotonous isn't the right word, but I feel like it's a fairly flat challenge among the stages because it draws from moving platforms, timed laser obstacles, and there's a type of, uh, really another type of moving platform, or a couple types. There's one that moves in a cycle that you can see, or like in a pattern, and there's a kind that shoots upwards. 
but you're typically dealing with one or the other of those, and even across level chunks, they're still usually built from those. So I feel like Sky Temple is one of the levels in which I am less aware of where the chunks of the level are sort of fitting together, because it just already is lots of suspended elements. So more so than the other three levels, Sky Temple is composed of those unique platform types? I'm not sure if it's more so than the other levels, because they each have their own type of platforms, but the way that Sky Temple's particular ones work, and I guess the way that the level is set up as like an outdoors level without walls or floors or anything, it just has a less ordered feel to it. So on one hand, that, like I said, it makes it feel more fluid. On the other hand, I always know exactly what I'm going to get going into it. I don't feel like the challenge changes a lot. Yeah. Would you say that means that the pacing in Sky Temple is fairly flat as well? I think because it has a lot of those timed elements, cycling platforms, bouncing platforms, timed lasers, the pacing really gets driven down to an individual jump level. It can have a halting pace depending on how aggressively you play it, or you can end up standing on platforms for a long time. But because of the fact that it's open and it's composed of a lot of these small jumps, I think it's more like a player-determined pace to the level. Yeah, it's just sort of free-flowing. How different would you say are the enemy challenges in Sky Temple? Sky Temple, I guess, is your typical, this is the platforming level, not the enemy level, because of the fact that it is composed of small platforms. So the enemies that interact with you usually do so in a way not as dependent on the architecture of the level. Or, for instance, uh, the floating sentinel guys, or whatever you want to call them, that move fairly irrespective of the architecture of the level, and then shoot lasers that go through everything either vertically or horizontally when you cross paths with them. So those, I feel like, interact with the platforming in the same way regardless of exactly how the platforming is defined. It's always just don't line up with that guy. Kind of like how the fly enemies can be placed anywhere in the level and they'll create a challenge for you. Yeah, and... One of the weirder things about Sky Temple that maybe is still being worked out, because it honestly feels really rough, is that as the level gets harder, there just end up being more enemies effectively stacked on top of each other. Yeah. Uh, There'll be a platform where there's literally pixel to pixel four different enemies that are just stationary, like a catapult, then a sniper Joe, then a catapult, then a sniper Joe, just back to back. And that is... Awkward, to say the least. I remember seeing that at 1.2, just all catapults, but I think it was <laughs> for a platforming challenge, because there was just a, a thin platform above it and a chest on the other side. I ended up falling okay. in and just taking them all out. <laughs> but yeah. It's a good way to add a hazard there, because I believe that stage doesn't have spikes or pits or anything. Well, it has pits, not the lava pits and the blue stuff pits like the others have. No, it's a green stuff in Jungle Station. Blue and ice. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think the biggest distinction in terms of hazards is that it has those lasers mm. which go from point to point, 
Whereas the other stages, like Jungle Station you were just talking about, will have spikes along walls or ceilings, like those vine-type spikes, which will define places where you can't wall climb or whatever. So, again, that just goes with the sort of everything is suspended in midair in Sky Temple. Even the hazards. <laughs> I'm torn on how I feel about those uh, enemies lumped together in Sky Temple. The first run of Sky Temple tends to be on the dry side because it's so focused on the moving platforms, and I just don't find it an engaging challenge to line up two timers. But when you lump a whole bunch of enemies right next to a platform moving on a chain in the background, that makes it compelling in that I have to interpret how to approach these enemies while being fixed on this platform. And uh, it's often simultaneously... uh, Frustrating and interesting finding a way to unravel the mosh pit of enemies while dealing with that platforming timer. I think it could be interesting, but my problem is not so much that they have those enemies there as that stacking them on top of each other is a really inelegant way of once again throwing in an arbitrary timer because those two enemies both have timed attacks. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think there is a single enemy that operates irrespective of your behavior. Like, Sniper Joes will only shoot their hand out when you cross their vision. Um, oh, wait, the, do the catapults always throw in the same arc regardless? I think they randomize their fire, and I think the Sniper Joes will attack if you're not in their line of fire. I think they wake up when you enter their line of fire. Okay. Do you want to talk about structure, or are you leaving that? structure? Well, I think the structure of platforming in Sky Temple is a little bit more flexible. Like, you can just jump over large amounts of stuff. Like, there's a time when I had to do one of the challenges to get an item that was really painful to do because it had lots of lasers and bouncing platforms. And then instead of going back through it, I just dropped down to a platform like a million miles below me. This is when we were playing, by the way, co-op. Yeah. So the freeform nature of the stage design and the fact that everything is randomly put together meant that there was this one time when there was a challenge suspended way up in the air and there was nothing blocking you from just jumping off. Yeah, I I think that the randomization of the structure there created a new gameplay opportunity. I guess... That's to say the different chunks of the level were able to interact. Whereas in a more fenced-in level, the chunks don't necessarily interact so directly. With uh, being able to easily get out of a challenge like that, I feel like the bonus timer is a decent... uh, That's what I'm looking for. Counterpoint? Counterpoint. Incentive? I guess. I guess. Opposite incentive. Uh, Disincentive? I guess, sure. You know what I mean. Uh, and that if you fall all that way, you're going to have to take the time to get back up, which really in the end just means you don't get a second item. So you come out even anyway, but you still want that second item. <laughs> yeah. The timer definitely benefits from the procedural generation because you can imagine if this were a strictly pixel-to-pixel designed game, then someone would memorize the quickest route to pick up all of the items and then blow through the boss. Whereas because it's randomly put together, there's always some level of exploration going on 
meaning that you're always risking that second item after the boss. Yeah, although I think that that's limited a little bit by the fact that side paths are so clearly demarcated as side paths. Like, sometimes I just, uh, you know, if I'm in a low health situation, I'm just going to go for the bonus timer. Yeah. I mean, I guess I shouldn't say it's made irrelevant by it, but it is at least uh, offset that way. Yeah, yeah, okay. So in the ice level, uh, the name of which I cannot recall right now... um, Dire Dire Ducks. Yeah, Dire Dire Ducks. There are Snowman's Land. There are... uh, Oh, it's Snowman Blow Man Land. (laughs) Uh, There are a couple unique types of platforms, or I don't even know if you would call these platforms, but there are uh, teleporters, there are platforms that move back and forth, and uh, there are segments where there's a crosshair that randomly appears over you, and then you need to take cover to lose the crosshair before it zeroes in on you and, and hits you. I think it's Frozen Data Center. Does that sound right? Oh, yeah, Frozen oh, Data Center. Better. Cool, yeah. I remember all right. That, isn't that where Ice Walrus lives, though? I'm not joking. I think it is. <laughs> I usually recognize the miniature level chunks, but those are usually placed in unique ways next to each other that it tends to feel fresh. For instance, there will be a level chunk I know, but it will be overlaid with the crosshair section, so it'll be kind of a new way to play through a section I already know. And um, teleporters are often placed with level chunks that allow you to skip by them? Even in a fixed chunk of the level, teleporters, their placement is generated. It's not fixed. Like, a lot of the secondary elements follow that rule. For instance, the on and off platforms in Vacuolab, where you'll have a section of the level that is going to be the teleporter section, but the teleporters may be in slightly different locations than they normally are. Yeah. And the game is not perfect about guiding you into its platforming challenges, so the procedural level chunk placement means that every now and then you can find a way to circumvent the challenge that it's going for, just because of the unique platform placement. And uh, that affords 20xx a level of satisfaction that you don't see in a in a strictly designed Capcom game. You know, It's always neat to circumvent a challenge rather than taking it head-on. Going a little bit beyond just element placement, I think this is something that actually does much more directly draw from Mega Man games where using weapons can allow you to sort of creatively circumvent challenges. And that's something, like I said, that goes back to Mega Man where you can use Metal Blade to just kill everything automatically. And the fact that uh, you get some control over what order you get the weapons in allows you know, more strategic decisions for, you know, if I'm playing as Ace, I want to get the Mortar because the Mortar is going to allow me to cheat a bunch of shit in Sky Temple. I, I like, always go for uh, the Spider's Power. I forget what it's called. With oh, yeah, Shockwave or whatever. Yeah, because yeah, it that's, yeah. gives you that close-range attack. Yeah, and it clears projectiles, so it's Whoa, what? really good. As for uh, enemies in the Frozen Data Center... There are spiders that blow up when you get close to them, and those always feel awkwardly placed in that they'll either hide in random corners or 
they'll just be out in the open. And uh, there are also penguins that fly around, and those don't feel like anything in particular because they'll just be hanging out in space somewhere, and it won't really influence my platforming in any meaningful way because they don't really rely on the platforms in the way that I do. It's the sole penguin. It goes like three times the distance. <laughs> always in your way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the thing about the penguins is they move irrespective of platforms again, like the sentinels from Sky Temple. But the difference is that in Sky Temple, those guys can attack you from way far away through anything, whereas the penguins actually have to be close to you. So... By the time a penguin gets close to you, you can usually just hold your ground and attack it. Or, if you're playing as Nina, you can just shoot it way before it has any chance to hurt you. So there is that, but there's also that the Sentinels in Sky Temple can move through platforms where the penguins will have to... uh, If you're in a tight corridor, then the penguins will have to worm their way around to you. I'm pretty sure they also only move if you're in line with them without anything in the way. Yeah. There are also fly enemies in every stage, just constantly coming at you. Waithwat, do you feel like the flies add anything to the challenge? For the most part, just as a minor obstacle. Like, I can't clear a jump if there's flies hanging around me. Yeah. Buzzing around me, haha. Because they're flies. I think I called them bats earlier. Bats, yeah. flies. I've seen them called no, those. So they, they basically work as a minor distraction on your way. Like, they give me a lot of trouble with Nina if they're above or below me, since, obviously, I shoot straight forward if I don't have an alternate attack. And with Ace, obviously, you can't deal with them until you're close up. Yeah. I think that they're more problematic, I guess, when they come from, like, above or something like that. Whenever they're in enclosed areas, they're just... I don't know. It's popcorn. Gives you something to do while nothing's happening. I feel like 20XX is the kind of game where each individual enemy matters. Yeah, but I don't know if you're transplanting that assumption for Mega Man. Yeah, it feels enough like Mega Man X that I wouldn't be surprised. So, Wastewat, when you account for all the methods of procedural generation and all of the platform varieties and enemy varieties, how unique is each level, both each generation of a level type and amongst the level types? Amongst the level types, I say they're really different since they have all the different obstacles and enemies, like the bats, the flies, the little little annoying dudes with wings are the only things that are really consistent between them. So having a lot to deal with, you know, gives it more to do. Uh, with level, specific level generations, I say it still keeps a good deal of uniqueness to it since there's enough chunks that... You know, you'll rarely see the same level twice, even just chunk-wise, not order-wise. Yeah, so would you say there's a time you play the jungle level and you might not see a chunk that you usually see? Yeah. I know there's one chunk that has... They've got the falling platforms that are red. They have big pillars that work the same way, and I rarely see those. So it's always a nice surprise to see them. Yeah. Yourself, how unique would you say the levels are? The four different levels, I think, they're fairly distinct, but I think the enemies are a little too fluffy, and the platforms are all so based on traditional either moving platforms or falling platforms that although each 
level has its independent element, like, I think they end up being functionally pretty close to each other. Like, I really like the teleporters in the ice stage. I think that adds something quite different to it. But then falling platforms versus, like, the boosting platforms from Sky Temple or whatever are not hugely different. And that's the kind of stuff where I guess Mega Man digs in on the enemies to get more out of it which sometimes can make it feel pretty gimmicky, but at the same time, this runs together a little bit. I think across iterations of any given level... Wait, um, yeah. before you go on, what did you mean by the enemies are a little too fluffy? They just are so tied to any one part of the level or have such predictable behavior that they don't feed back or interact much with the platforming. Sure. I'm not talking about any specific attribute of them so much as that I don't think that they add to the design a whole lot, which is why it surprises me that that's where you would go to look for depth. Across iterations, it's hard to give it a uniqueness rating, but I think the game does a fairly good job of mixing it up so that it's interesting to play the same stage twice. A lot of that is what we haven't really touched on at all yet. The fact that the game is, I guess what these days is called a roguelike, but I would rather it just be called a survival game. The idea being that you just have a health bar and there are no points at which it fully refills. You can find items or power-ups occasionally that will give you some health back, but once you run out, you start the game from the beginning again. And... I mean, I don't think that there's any coincidence at all that procedural generation has historically been tied to that element because it means that as you get low on health and as things get harder, you have to decide on what kind of strategies you're going to use to approach things. And so I feel like the real interest in it, and maybe this is getting too far off topic, is how variable is each individual challenge like any enemy how much is there a safe way to go about fighting that enemy versus the quick way it sounds like you're kind of speaking to the resource management that would go into a gambit you would play in a traditional roguelike but the resource in 20xx is time and health yeah and energy as well oh Um, yeah yeah and then Like I said, I think we're getting a little off topic because I think this is a more interesting conversation to have in context of items. Yeah. And we're not really getting into that here. But I think that that is where the uniqueness of the levels comes into play in that having a moving platform with a sniper chair right in front of it is going to seem a lot more trivial early in the game than it will later on when I have a lot more options to deal with it. Yeah. Okay. So is that to say levels have a good sense of design? When you say good sense of design, do you mean do I have the idea that they were designed, or is the design good? Is the design good? I mean, this is just subjective city. The reason I have a hard time responding to this is, to me, design is an objective element, and I don't have an appreciation for what is necessarily good or bad design so much as design that accomplishes what it wants to and this design is going for replayability i guess and 
I think within that context, yeah, I think it does a pretty good job. All right. That sounds good to me. I think maybe it would help to say I would rank the levels. One, Sky Temple. Two, Ice Palace. Three, Baculab. And four, Burn City. Except that there's the one segment of Super Hot Facility where there's always a hamster wheel stuck in the really tight corridor. <laughs> This, ham- this hamster wheels, they get up to a lot of nonsense. <laughs> the, jo- the little sound effect they have just makes them so funny. <laughs> if it wasn't for that, they'd be the worst enemy. <laughs> well, they're not an enemy. They're just shenanigans. <laughs> so, Waithwat, would you say that the levels in 20XX have a good sense of design? Overall, I'd say, yeah, I guess so. Though, to be honest, I really haven't played a lot of Mega Man games. I played all the Zero games on easy mode on that DS re-release. Oh. But comparatively, I'd say I'm enjoying it. Seems to work for the most part. Yeah, I agree. Going in, I expected the worst, just because I don't have a lot of faith in procedural generation, even if the level trunks are pre-made. But... But I... (laughs) But, uh... (laughs) Gimmicks for each level are distinct enough that it gives the level a sense of progression, even if the level chunks might be in reverse order from last time. You still get a verse-chorus rhythm to each level from the overlay of gimmicks and enemies. So I'd say it also has a good sense of design. Yeah, I think the one, I mean, maybe to equivocate further, uh, the one thing I think it's mainly lacking is a strong sense of theme to the levels. And maybe that would just be breaking out into a totally different discussion entirely. But what is theme if not platform types and enemies? Yeah, but I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't compose them well, but theme to me is a uniting gameplay concept that defines why is this platform in the same stage as that platform? Uh, like Like some some notion of relevance between the penguin enemy and the teleporter. Yeah, theme goes beyond interplay to link elements that aren't necessarily being interacted with at the same time. In Vacuolab, uh, you could say there's thematic linkage between platforms that fall when you stand on them for a second and platforms that blink in and out of existence because those are sort of doing the same thing with limiting your time, the time that you can use on that platform, but one is doing it via timing and one is doing it via reflex. Yeah. So I don't think there's a lot of that, but again, I think that's a different conversation we didn't really get into. Yeah, just because um, while that is an interesting discussion, I don't feel like it speaks to procedural generation. That's a conversation you could have about Mega Man X. Right, and I think that that is something that I only bring up in context of procedural generation for saying that I think it is the big shortcoming of procedural generation that I don't think it makes theme more interesting. But um, Yeah, you, you would never get Tree Zone 2 <laughs> in a procedurally generated Super Mario Land 2. Right. All right. So, Adrian, in the super hot facility, 
how different would you say are the platforming challenges from run to run? You know, they're actually kind of the procedural gener- procedural generation in general. I'm actually kind of surprised at um, how many I see of the same, where I see a lot of very similar results within like the same respective worlds. The platforming variety, I, I don't really think there's that much. I mean, you have conveyor belts, and I, I think that's about it. For the super hot facility in specific, yeah, as far as platforms, you, they just had gave you different sized platforms in the conveyor belts. Like, I can't even think of what kind of other platforms they had. That that was about it. So as far as platforming challenge is concerned, the way the platforms aren't set up doesn't really make much of the challenge. It's really just how they put enemies, especially the flying ones, around those platforms that makes jumps, you know, tricky or not. So you would say that the platforming challenges in the super hot facility are so trivial that you don't even notice any distinction between playthroughs because it's just not something you, you pay attention to. Well it's not that it's not that I would say it's trivial, is that nothing about the way they're arranged, you know, from the way the levels are generated like there's not enough differentiation with it. So it's a lot of times it's enemies over gaps and platforms like spaced away from each other so that you need to dash up or those really super small platforms that they have hanging over the lava. Yeah. But that's about the most difficult that I've ever seen the platforms really get. Like where the platforms are spaced, I wouldn't call it trivial, but one, there's like not that many types of platforms that come to mind. And two, they don't even arrange them in all that many different ways to make different kinds of platforming challenges. Like there's not a moving platform. There are two different types of moving. Yeah, they're sliding well, platforms you, in uh, Agnesort. If that's yeah. what you mean. I remember them in the challenges. Like, at the there moment, is, I remember any in the full level. Uh, one chunk I can think of that has it is there's one place where you're going vertically and there's a fork in a fairly narrow vertical shaft. And on the left side of the fork, you have like a path with fire on both walls and Ugh. three very small platforms moving between. Actually, I think the fire is only there in the harder versions of it, maybe. And then on the right side, you have a much wider spacing, and there's like four layers of larger platforms. But I think there are enemies on that side or something. Yeah, I yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, I am an idiot. There are moving platforms. They're just um, <laughs> slow. So like jumping onto them isn't particularly difficult. Yeah, okay. And, and you're not really dealing with momentum. You're, you have a character with pretty high air control, so aiming yourself to land on a platform or having to deal with momentum, like that's not really a thing in, with these kind of controls. Sure. Mm-hmm. Superhot does at least have those fire shooters that at, le- at least yeah. add something to the platforming. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so... You, we probably all have seen the same like bonus challenge or where they have an area tucked away where there's just like you have to jump down through platforms or jump up through the thin platforms and there's just like a whole wall of them. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those fire shooter challenges are a real bitch. <laughs> so how different are the enemy challenge setups in the super hot facility? Well, here's the thing. They... The flying enemies are the ones that I remember the most. It seems to be the one that are the most recurring. But, I mean, the uh, flies, like the yeah, little... the flies, yeah. those things. 
they're some of the most recurring. There's one like green raptor looking thing, but I don't actually come across that thing that often. Green uh, you mean the guy that spits fire in a spread? Yeah. I don't know what it is. It's it's like a snake head on a it's Yeah, it's like the cat. weird cousin of Bone Pillar. <laughs> there are turrets in that level as well. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, the the turrets that remind me a lot of the ones in Azure Striker Gunvolt. Ah uh, yeah. They, Except uh, they don't take they don't take that long to actually shoot at you. Do you think that the perforator is their dad? <laughs> like, cause they're little baby turrets. Yeah, at first it made sense that they were in that level, and then uh, they're also in the jungle. They seem a little well, bigger in the jungle, though. Yeah, maybe he had some illegitimate children. He's not telling anyone about. <laughs> so he is, he, he is the perforator. <laughs> um, let's not get uh, too far off G-rated here. Hey, we talked about bayonetta already, so whatever. That was edited out. Um. <clears throat> So, how different would you say are the enemy placements in the super hot facility from run to run? Um, this, this is why I wish I had more time to prepare. See, the thing is, with the flying enemies, because they kind of follow you, standing on a platform and kind of baiting them out can make a lot... Whether they're placed differently, you can make that like the same challenge. Sometimes they may be at different elevations, and that's where most of the changes happen, but it's not uncommon for them to want to be at your level. Yeah, they follow uh, you. Yeah, and even the bee enemies come to you. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of enemies come to you. You don't have enemies that... um. Well, you do... Actually, you do have enemies that come into an area, but because those are the ones that occur the most, you can... Like, like this is something that actually extends across almost all the levels. You, you come across a lot of situations where it's just goading out the flies so that they're actually in range of the platform in range of, you know, the buster or the saber. You don't want them in that uh, little blind... St- well, it's for for Nina, she has a blind spot, you know, directly above and below her because she can't shoot there. Yeah. But it's not the case with um, Zero. What's what's his name? Ace. Ace. And I'm just going to call him Zero. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong, pretty much. <laughs> <clears throat> Something... Yeah, you mentioned of the enemies is that there is a sort of thing where you're kind of just a magnet throughout the game. Like, so many enemies have behaviors that are just strictly triggered when you cross their path, or their behavior is just to move towards you. Yeah, the the jetpack penguins are another one that yeah. do that too. And those uh, weird floaty tower-looking guys that yeah, the, do the big spark. We've been calling uh, them sentinels. Yeah, sentinels. I named them Sentinels. That's a cool name, and I really like it. <laughs> I, I hope the official name isn't lame. Yeah, and the turrets aim at you. You could name a lot of instances. It Honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, it seems kind of overdone. I, I don't mind the turrets as much because they're a stationary element, so they can, they can actually tuck themselves away to where it's more of a challenge of you getting to them. But uh, with the other ones... Often I find myself in cases where I just have to wait for them to come to me, and there we go. Now it's the same challenge that I've been doing multiple times. Sounds like that speaks to a disconnect where uh, they will have preset level challenges, and then they plop random enemies into it. And to get a random enemy to work, they'll have a turret or a flower turn towards you, or they will have a fly go to you, and that works regardless of what the platforming setup is. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because, um, to me, that was one of the most 
interesting things. Like, I didn't verbalize it in my playthroughs, but that is one of the things that I kind of came across. And that is the challenge of having to make these kind of levels to where you can just generate a random sort of platforms, but, you know, like, because you're not going to get the, um, that same challenge that you get for more handcrafted levels, because most of the times, like, a lot of enemies in these kinds of games, they have to have a specific type of layout for them to really work. Yeah, like, that's how, like, Counterpoint is developed in a lot of times by, yeah. like, offsetting timers and stuff like that. And then there's other times where you there are certain enemies that just don't play well with each other because, and, oh yeah, that's the other challenge with having random enemies is that even when you can't have them fit kind of anywhere because their their pattern is based more on the relative position of the player, which, which is totally fine, by the way, you, you have to also make that in a ways to where they're not overwhelming, not having too many of them in the same space. Otherwise, you get the nightmares from... Extreme and Mega Man. <laughs> I just had to reference that game because, I man, I don't why you played it. So, would you so, say edit that out because Capcom's gonna censor us if if anyone mentions the existence of Mega Man XX. <laughs> <laughs> um, duly noted. Um, no, I'll just bleep it out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> No, I should do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Adrian, it sounds like you uh, would you say you're a fan of 20XX level design? I will say this it's not Mega Man level design. Like, this is a game very inspired by Mega Man, but the level design is definitely not what you would see in a Mega Man game. It's different. It's very different because, one, the challenges are way looser. Like, they don't have what you would often see in, you know, Mario games where you have a challenge and then you mix it with something else and they have a steady progression of that. Uh, you don't really see that kind of thing in 20XS. Sometimes it's just more enemies or more enemies that take more to die or they're beefed-up versions of similar enemies. Do you think it is inherently impossible to make a game with a Mega Man level design sensibility that is also procedurally generated? Impossible? No. No, 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 no. Absolutely not. Uh, very, very hard? Pro yeah. But the point being, do you think they're at odds? The concepts? Uh, it's the probably concepts? harder. Yeah, I mean, you, you would have to have it set up so that the way the generation has to be done has to be built in the mind that, okay, here are ideas, and it has to recognize when it's actually mixing them so that you can get some progression of counterpoint with the enemies. You basically, you have to put in a lot more variable checks to check in if this enemy is actually being put in an area, basically areas that work to the enemy's strength to where they're, they're covering a unique part of the design space. Like, that's, that's what I wanted to get across. Yeah, I think it has to be a little more confined, and that is, to me, why I think it's... Yeah, there's a lot of open space in this game. Michael Cook hosts the yearly Procedural Generation Jam. In his article, More Unpredictable Stuff, he presents, quote, a vision of procedural generation that we've always used, and it can be described in three words. More unpredictable stuff. Let's walk through each word and ask if it applies to 20XX. says it's stuff 
because we don't really care about what's being generated. His example here is No Man's Sky, which he says produces beautiful planets, but they're just data. The system doesn't need to know what a planet is or what it does. It chews up the data as we tell it to, and it spits it out in the shape of a big ball of rock. And later in the article, he talks about, uh, for example, Spelunky doesn't feel particularly artful because it doesn't matter uh, how well it was designed. It just matters that it's possible to get to the end of a level. Do you think that speaks to your experience of 20XX, that it's just kind of stuff? A bit, yeah. Like I've said before, that it does get to not a super repetitive point, but you start recognizing chunks after you've played for a while. Yeah. It's not It's not even, like, a long while either. It's like This is, like, very soon you start to see very similar chunks of areas. Yourself? Okay, so he says, No Man's Sky produces beautiful planets. And I think what's interesting there is he says, beautiful planets. They're not just planets. So that's like a subjective reaction or an evaluation. So I think that what that hints at is an inherent goal of what is being generated. Like, you can, from random data, get a beautiful planet that doesn't need to... Like, a planet being beautiful is not reliant on any conceptual ordering of, like, a designer. So I think that that's what procedural generation comes down to, these aspects of what makes something interesting. So he's saying we can generate a beautiful planet. Can we generate a... I mean, planet is a weird one for this, but can we generate, like, a difficult planet? Can we generate a, a educational planet? <laughs> uh, so I think that that is the more interesting aspect there. And so when we're talking about 20XX, the stuff that it's creating is levels. That's, like, the individual unit in which the procedural generation comes into a whole. So... I think we do care, well, especially we talk about level design, which is that whole first segment was about. That's what we care about, and that's what a level is composed of. So I think that the system does need to know what it's doing, and I think that in 20XX it does know to a certain extent that, you know, uh, I was saying offline, uh, the Sentinels work good with moving platforms and those will occur together in this one type of level so that limiting of elements is inherently like knowledge that's been put into the system or like a baseline parameter of what's being generated so you would say that means that it ascends above the sense of stuff because there are certain possibilities that it has excluded and certain possibilities that it has prioritized yeah, it really is not just random elements thrown together. In his instance, it's beautiful stuff. In the instance of 20XX, it's stuff that's hard to survive. It is worth noting that this is Michael Cook talking about the reputation of procedural generation, not uh, talking to the actuality of procedural generation. Oh, okay. So when he says we don't care about what's being generated, that's his summation of what people think right he makes sure later in the article to say we should challenge that notion as often as possible okay it's Uh, much weirder that you're presenting something is like (laughs) that we're reacting to his reactions to something (laughs) yeah Uh, if 
if that's what he thinks that people I don't think that the developers of 20XX think that at all. And I think that's exemplified in, you know, some of the examples I just gave. Okay. So the second word he uses, unpredictable. And his explanation for it here is unpredictable. Note that crucially, this is not the same as novel. Procedural generators don't have to produce things that surprise people. They just have to be hard to predict. Even Spelunky a game I hold up as probably the best use of procedural generation in history, uses the technology to simply keep the player on their feet. So, Waithwant, does 20XX keep you on your feet? For the most part, not so much with the chunks themselves, with the layout of them. As as I've said, you do start recognizing chunks, but you rarely recognize a layout. Of chunks, if you get what I mean. How one chunk connects to the next and how enemies are placed. Yeah, enemies as well, in that they don't entirely have set spawning points. At least it feels that way. Yeah, it's uh, random enough that it feels that way. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, it's not to the point where we can tell apart where the chunks start and stop. Or we can recognize how even how many chunks there are in a given level. Yeah. Like, usually there's only, hey, I remember that one part, I just played it two minutes ago, and then it, that'll be about the end of that. Everything else in the level, it might not strike out to me that it is a chunk that I've seen before, or that uh, or that's even a chunk at all. Alright. And the last word that Michael Cook reviews, uh, is also the first word in his definition, more, because that is always the watchword. We use procedural generation so we can press a button and find another thing. And another, and another, always and forever. So, Waithwant, do you feel like uh, there's an eternity of levels within 20XX? Not entirely, I would say. Since, again, you do start recognizing chunk layouts as you go. But getting familiar with it overall does change things. I feel like... If it had more ways, more items and powers that could change up how you play drastically, it would be able to give you more. Not just with the layout generation, but with the item generation. Mm. Like, uh, Binding of Isaac, I play a lot. I really don't play so much for the map generation, but seeing what kind of crazy item combos I can get. While 20XX, at the moment, is kind of limited in that regard. You can get your neat shot changes, or sword changes, like the axe phrase, or the wavy particle beam, whatever, for Nina, which can change things up a bit. It's worth noting that you also have the uh, passive attributes, and you get tons of those for each round. Right, but outside of like the air dash and the double jump, I feel like those don't change a whole lot. Mm. Just how many hits you can take, or how many hits the enemy can't take. Yeah, I think that's factor into your underlying assumptions about strategy, sort of what I was alluding to before. Uh, with regards to, like, survivability. Like, I think that's what the statistical tweaks play into, much more so than your reaction to the platforming itself. Though, actually, with the items, have you guys seen these? They're, they're, they're set up like a shop normally would be, but there's just one item and you get it for free. Yeah, the clovers. Yeah. There was a bit of time where I didn't play, and then I got, like, three updates at once, so I'm not sure how much is recent. They're really rare, I think. Yeah, I've gotten them like twice since I Yeah, I think I've I've played for eight hours and seen three, maybe. 
Mm-hmm. They feel like they're they're still just with us. Just your stats kind of change. Like I had gotten one, give me a big boost of health, but like really lowered my damage. And another yeah. one that took away all but one of my health and replaced it with armor. Yeah, I got that one too. Oh, what? Yeah. Oh my god. They, uh, they're like wild cards. Uh, one of them I had did something like slowed down the timing of the level, I think. What? They're not totally clear about what they're going to do always. Mm-hmm. So yourself, you would say that those granular tweaks don't really make the game feel infinitely long? No, I don't. I mean, I think maybe I'm on the same wavelength as him because I know he's criticizing this stuff. I don't think more or like the idea of an eternally new game is at all what 20XX is going for. I think that it's driving challenge by procedural generation. Well, 20XX does have an endless mode. Yeah, yeah, but again, it has it has a score as well. I mean, the idea of the endless mode is not much different than the idea of playing Donkey Kong and trying to get as far as you possibly can. Like looping it? Right. I, I think that's endless mode is not any different from that at all. The game has an end point. None, none of us have seen it, to my knowledge. <laughs> I but, hope there's no Wily Castle. <laughs> but I don't think that it is deceiving you at all about the fact that when you get to the end, you've beaten the game. And that's, I guess, what I keep playing for, not because it's just the same thing over and over again, except slightly different. All right. And I think that unpredictability plays into that as well, where it's being unpredictable in the sense that it's switching you up, but I don't think that it's necessarily to its detriment that you can come to recognize the chunks of the levels. Yeah, I think that that's that line he's straddling between unpredictable and novel, and that novel would be like, oh my god, I never imagined, but unpredictable is like, you can't tell what pixel a platform is going to be on. And even that I don't think it does, because I think jump lengths and stuff like that are fairly regular or... uh, Tuned? Yeah, so... I think unpredictability comes into play more in terms of, like, items and stuff. But, again, this is all just, I think, driving a linear challenge. And I'm not a huge fan of procedural generation, but I also think it's way too easily dismissed by people who think it's that it's just making a one-hour experience that's the same thing over and over again. Uh, I think it's just... uh, Not necessarily, but I think it can be used. And in the case of 20XX, I think it is used to drive a different sense of longevity and depth to a game, whereas Mega Man may limit you by only giving you two lives, and so you have to learn the levels really well, and that's what you play over and over for 20XX, instead of uh, limiting you that way, is giving you one life bar and forcing you to stretch that over stuff that may not always be exactly the same every time. It's more flexible, which doesn't at all mean it's better, but I think it's a different approach to the very same idea. All right. And last but not least, Michael Cook also mentions that this view of procedural generation uh, is limiting, that we should uh, always push our boundaries. To quote, I think every assumption we have about procedural generation, even the idea that it should be infinite, can be challenged and experimented with. So, do you see any games currently moving beyond uh, the more unpredictable stuff model of procedural generation? 
I mean, I think roguelikes still. Like, if Sheer and the Wanderer for SNES, I don't think is limited to that model at all. How so? For pretty much similar reasons to what I laid out here, I think the way that it is like a survival challenge sort of undoes that whole notion. Like, it is constructed from certain sets of elements in phases. Like, the first five levels uh, are like your world one and contain certain enemies and layouts and like different items you're getting are really just influencing your strategy to throw you off. But I I wouldn't play the game again just to see if I could get a sword plus four on the first, first floor or something. I've played a couple of like final labyrinth for us or for Genesis was a good one. Wait, that's what it's called, right? Final Labyrinth? That's such a generic name, it's hard to remember. Uh, Fatal Labyrinth? Fatal, I was going to say, yeah. Fatal Labyrinth, yeah. All right. I've played, yeah. I mean, there's no point in just listing a bunch of games. Actually, one more. Minecraft, I think, is the one that succumbs most to what he's criticizing, and I think it's natural that people would come to those conclusions about more unpredictable stuff because of how fucking popular Minecraft is. Right. <laughs> yeah. A game I was going to mention was actually the No Man's Sky one, where as far as the uh, procedural generated games that I do know about, that one seems to be going uh, really crazy about it, because I don't know any other game where it says to that it made everything was procedurally generated. Well, Which my, doesn't Minecraft sound entirely is, true. Yeah, Minecraft is pretty much like that, though. I think, actually, maybe the big distinction here is that roguelikes and now including 20XX and roguelike develop from the chunks that we've been talking about throughout, whereas Minecraft has a sort of different set of rules where it's based on, like, more properties, like stuff on the surface of the world is generated in a certain way and stuff yeah. at certain depths is generated in a certain way but it's never measured out in a way that dictates how the player progresses through it. Yeah, uh, I think they're both going for um, a much larger scale in, in what you can explore. So yeah. that would be what they do for the procedurally generated Mega Man Legends. <laughs> yeah, I think part of it is a difference between adventure games and platformers, and I think that maybe platformers lend themselves better to it, or... I don't know. I just think it's that Minecraft is really not a good one, and I do think there's a good version of Minecraft somewhere in the world. Maybe it's No Man's Sky. I don't know. What was the first game you played where procedural generation played a significant hand in level design? I wouldn't say Minecraft really does, because everybody's played that. It's procedural, but it really doesn't have a level design so much. Yeah, that's exactly it. Well, for the sake of this question, that counts. You played that before uh, 20XX? Yeah. Okay. But, like I was saying, it, it wouldn't be that, so I'm just thinking things over. Binding of Isaac really wouldn't either. Like, just going through level design, it's... Each room is disconnected, essentially. So, 
probably this, honestly. Okay. Adrian, what was the first game you played where procedural generation played a significant hand in level design? Well, if we're talking about, like, randomly generated stuff, that would actually be Pikmin 2. But I had no idea it was randomly generated. That's right, the uh, basements, right? (laughs) Yeah, they are randomly generated, and I had no idea. Uh, Spelunky, though, probably because I was older, uh, I did pick up on the fact that they were randomly generated. But this is the game uh, that I really... Well, actually, no, that would be Pikmin 2. I just didn't notice. This is the first game where I noticed it, and actually played more than two minutes of it but i've only gotten like i think four hours in i I really did wish i played more before coming to this podcast first four Uh, hours is probably where i am uh well we can check in steam can't we we should have all announced at the beginning Uh, let's see i have eight hours i'm not signing into steam uh Uh, well yeah but no i'm friends so i can just look at uh adrian has four hours and I don't think I'm friends with Waithwat. No. Wait, how much do I have? Oh. He's not friends with you. <laughs> uh, less, uh, let's see. Uh, you have six hours and eight hours in Darius Burst. All right. That's really short time to get two clears. I guess that game really is easy at the beginning. Really is easy. Uh, so... Yourself, what was the first game you played where procedural generation played a significant hand in level design? Would you say that's uh, Sheer in the Wanderer? No way. I only played that like two or three years ago. You mean, wait, you don't mean earliest chronologically, do you? I mean earliest in your life. <laughs> yeah, I played a shitload of Diablo 2 when I was like 13 or 14. That's right. I, I always forget that about Diablo. Yeah, and I also played a lot of Fantasy Star Online back then. So... Adrian, any final words? I really like 20XX, and I'm definitely going to be playing more of it. Yourself, any final words? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, 20XX is alright. Alright. I think it's a good game uh, here, I think it's a good game to approach procedure generation from. It has enough of a balance of elements that you get the sense of what is being generated and what isn't, and so it makes it easy for us to have these conversations about level design. I see. Whereas, like, Minecraft, I feel like we'd be in the the desert. I don't know. I I think with Minecraft, like, majority of the time, it's just not a thing that matters. Like, kind of like how Waythoth's thing was, like, not really level design. It's just a big world. With with the Minecraft thing, really the only time where you are matters is if you want something really specific, like a color of wood, or not really, just that. <laughs> yeah, I think or to discuss, that, that. discuss Minecraft, you'd have to just come at it from a totally different angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think 20XX is better if you're looking at traditional design principles as affected by procedural yeah. generation. Like if you're and the fact that it's a 2D game, so it's much uh, easier to talk about things like platform placement and enemy placement, whereas in a 3D game, they can be, you know, wherever. Mm-hmm. So, Waithwat, any final words? Not really. We kind of said everything I could have, I think. <laughs> All right, that's a good feeling. I like that. <laughs> All right, thank you, everyone, for joining me. We'll have to rope you back in for another 20XX podcast, but until then, au revoir.
All music in this podcast is from 20XX. I'll leave you with this final thought. Although 20XX builds its levels using a random arrangement of level chunks, they still have a sense of pacing. I say it's random, but it's not completely random. Chunks don't just appear anywhere in the level, but instead, the tougher ones tend to come at the end. Levels have a sense of identity, too, since each has its own type of enemies and platforms. So, assume that knowledge doesn't matter, as if you always know how a level is going to be arranged. In that case, what's the difference between a level with one determinate design and a level that's procedurally generated? They both have a set of challenges, characterized by a limited set of elements, and they both have a progression of ideas. The difference must be very fine. If you have any comments or questions, please email vgcommune at gmail.com. The Commune Podcast is procedurally generated in front of a live studio audience. So I'm recording now. So Adrian, how are you doing? Uh, I've been doing fine. Uh, I was just at a friend's house. We watched this Smash Brothers Direct. It was super fun. Nice. Did Holy anyone shit. die? Vendetta and Smash, that was incredible. Ah, heaven for Bart Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I'm still still staying hopeful for that Goku. (laughs) I mean, I even went to the site and submitted a vote for Bart Simpson and wrote a nice little paragraph about why I think he should be in the game. Eat your shorts, man. So Adrian, we just got done talking about level design in 20XX. And I wanted to ask... uh, Wait, Bayonetta is in Smash? No. (laughs) Chippy Robo isn't smash. No, Bayonetta? Really? Alright, whatever. She it's won like the ballot, apparently. It's like an S&M themed adult character. That's so weird. Enemies with the level design. But sometimes I've actually seen where there's ways where they can be where it seems like they actually did do it deliberately. Like, there's one in, I think, that jungle level where you go through a really, really narrow passageway. It's diagonal, so it's hard to get it, and it's one of those ones that make vines sprout up from the ground. Like, Oh, yeah. That, I know what setup you're talking about. Yeah, and that is, like, that always shows up like that, and it is always a pain. Yeah. It's a specific counterpoint, yeah. Yeah, it, it like one is specific and it conveys a very clear idea like go in really fast and either wail on them as fast as you can or charge back. And it is an area that does kind of go with that enemy's attack and bring out the nature of, you know, most of the times you can just jump over, but here it's like your only option left is to run away from it. Yeah. And it also brings out the, and it also draws attention to the fact that it gets bigger the further it goes. So, so, Theoretically, you could jump over it if you're really close and you time it really well, but um, if you're too far away because you're using the buster or taking advantage of the range of zero saber, then you're going to need to back off. Um, That is one of the few areas where it seems... where That does feel like a mega encounter. It's just maybe the one thing is that they put it a little too far, so the challenge uh, came off a little annoying the first time I tried to do it. Yeah. But... It's it's still all fair.
I mean, it might be a little annoying having to repeat that. And I think that might be another thing is that um, trying to have those kinds of challenges without them repeating too frequently. Yeah, and that's what, like, if you put in a lot of, like, the more controls you put in for how things are generated, then the less, uh, you know, random or new it's going to feel each time you play it. Uh, I mean, there's, like, sort of a middle ground that you have to strive towards. Um, And I think that uh, the way that this game accomplishes it is mostly by, like, tuning the... or or putting specific enemies with specific um, platforms or whatever. So I don't think it's... I mean, I'm pretty sure we're all fair, but uh, I... don't think that it's totally lacking that sense of uh, interaction between levels and, or enemies and platforming elements. Um, but I don't yeah. think it's quite at the level of uh, strictness that makes Mega Man what it is, I guess. Yeah. Like, for instance, uh, the Sentinels uh, that shoot lasers while you're on those floating platforms, those always occur together. And that, to me, is very reminiscent of, say, Crash Man stage in Mega Man 2, uh, where you're riding those scripted platforms and just, like, stupid little uh, floaty enemies are automatically spawned and fly straight at you. Like, I think you're dealing with a similar setup there. Mm. All right, time's up.